Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medella, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medella, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. To parent-teacher meetings goes many a bewildered Olsen. Now hold on, Miss Fox. It's all very well to teach my boy to paint pretty pictures and build birdhouses. He doesn't even know his multiplication table. Before the meeting, the protesters were outside and held up signs saying they don't want JCPS to teach critical race theory. Because they won't let us speak. This is what communism does. I am horrified that teachers are targeted for the basic work that they do to provide students a safe space to be themselves. The Western culture and values that brought forth Christianity and the founding documents are being called evil and racist. Today, an overwhelming majority of U.S. educators are convinced that these new teaching methods are best equipping today's youngsters you're listening to civics 101 from new hampshire public radio i'm nick capodice i'm hannah mccarthy and today we're talking about teaching civics and i'm going to start with a massive caveat here i'm not just talking about civics education i'm also talking about social studies that's sort of the umbrella term for civics history economics geography and at times other things depending on what state you live in Because education is a prime example of federalism. It just varies so much from state to state. So today we're going to look into the history of teaching history in the U.S., the question of who gets to choose what gets taught, and finally learn what's going on in American classrooms right now. And we're going to learn about so-called divisive concepts laws, curricula, frameworks, standards, and the relationships between teachers, students, parents, and the government. Ooh, where do you want to start? Where do you think we should start? Well, I, of course, want to know about the history of teaching history in the U.S. We say all the time how students today are learning about things you or I were never taught. Uh, But first, can we do a sort of bird's eye view of the state of civics education in America? How are we doing? Well, the answer is we are doing well in some regards and not so well in others. One of the most often quoted statistics, by me at least, came from Danielle Allen. Danielle is the James Bryan Conant University professor at Harvard and director of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation. And is this the stat about how much money the federal government spends on civics education per student in the U.S.? Yeah, that one. So for those who haven't heard Nick or me say it before, here we go. The federal government spends about $50 per student per year on STEM education, that is science, technology, engineering, and math. But when it comes to civics education, it spends five cents. That's the long and the short of it. And this is no shade from us on STEM whatsoever, by the way. We're just pointing out this rather vast discrepancy. But I will get back to that statistic, Hannah, because I have a very important update to it. But Hannah and I both met with Danielle Allen in D.C. a few months ago, and we asked her why. Why so little money for civics? And here's what she said. For me, one of the most important data points to keep in mind is the difference between generations in this country for degree of commitment to democracy. When you look at the cohort that was born before World War II, 
about 70% of that generational cohort considers it essential to live in a democracy. When you look at the age cohort, that's about 40 and younger, not quite 30% consider it essential to live in a democracy. So that's how serious it is. You can't have a democracy if people don't want one. We have somehow failed to do the sort of generational handoff, passing on of an understanding of and commitment to our democracy. So from my point of view, that's what we have to reverse. We need to get back to a place where the supermajority of rising generations of Americans considers it essential to live in a democracy. You can't do that without civic education. One of the things we hear most frequently from listeners, especially those who went to school in the 70s and the 80s, is that they feel that they learned a lot of civics in high school, uh, but that there is less civics education today. Yeah, and that's not like a trick of winsome back-in-my-day nostalgia. That is the truth. We did used to routinely require several semesters in high school of government or civics and the like, and at other levels, those requirements have really dropped off over the last 50 years. And a good way of capturing that is that, you know, as of about two years ago, we had hit rock bottom. Rock bottom being that five cents per kid per year on civics education. Yes. But things are looking up in 2023. The good news is we've actually reversed that dynamic now. We're up to 50 cents per kid on civic education. All right. So, hey, we're moving in the right direction now. Look, look, now we can say we hit bottom, right? Because we, we've, turned, we've turned it, we turned the corner. We've gone up from five cents to 50 cents. So uh, that's better than the poke in the eye. You know, I'm, I'm glad about that. And I see it as a sign of all the hard work that educators and scholars and families are putting in around the country. That move from the five cents per year to 50 cents per year didn't happen by accident. There really is a growing grassroots movement of people working to be, you know, civic educators civic mending, doing work of knitting communities back together again, being confident pluralists, recognizing we have all kinds of disagreements, conflicts of viewpoint and so forth, but we can build relationships that permit us to workshop hard problems together. Okay, so we've done better. We hit a low point in 2021, but due to the work of many people, we are doing better now, civics education-wise. Yes and no, I hope to have a clearer answer to that by the end of this series. I hope you do too, Nick. So one thing I want to know a bit more about is who decides what gets taught in a classroom? The unescapable answer for who decides is it totally, totally depends. This is Adam Latz. He is a professor at Binghamton University and studies the history of education. Uh, there's a million factors and it depends on the kind of school. But let, let me, now can I can I ask you a question? So like, uh, where'd you go to school? Like uh, elementary school, what kind of school? Where did you go to elementary school, Nick? Well, I moved around a lot, Hannah. Uh, but when I took civics and social studies, I was in eighth grade at Merrimack Valley Middle School. I had a wonderful teacher named Mr. Zeka, to whom I will forever be indebted for introducing me to all the president's men. I happen to love this country. You know, we're not a bunch of zanies out to bring it down. Wait, weren't you arguing the opposite way? What am I? But the states have uh, a say in, in uh, deciding factor in what standards. And uh, Mr. Zeka is responsible to look at the standards, but there is very little actual measure of what Mr. Zeka chooses to do on any given Thursday in April, say. There, there are standards. There's frameworks in every state. A lot of states have a variety of, of standardized tests to evaluate 
not so much in history and civics, uh, but in other subjects. And some, in, like in New York, we have history and civics. Now, I've read a lot of these frameworks. They've helped guide what episodes we choose to do. But again, they vary wildly from state to state. Uh, some haven't been updated in decades, and there is no national set of standards. And so the state is the biggest input. Teachers are a big input. Parents are a big input. But also, and this is the one that mostly gets ignored, students are a big input. You go school to school. When you're a student in eighth grade, you didn't feel like you had any say. I didn't feel like I had any say in Mr. Tully's class in seventh grade. But we certainly do. And the, the best test of this is ask any teacher anywhere, anytime. It's the biggest determinant of what they decide to do. Like, well, I'll do that in my third period class, but there's no way I could do it in fifth period. The fifth period kids just will not do the homework or whatever. Uh, so who decides? The, the first and most obvious answer for what's supposed to happen is the state. The second most important answer is really the teacher. But none of these people get to say it's all a negotiation. It's an endless indirect negotiation based on all the factors, you know? So a teacher, Mr. Zeka is going to say, okay, well, if I teach my kids uh, about the Milai massacre today, am I, is my principal going to get a phone call saying that I'm, you know, doing some sort of hippie stuff and they don't like it or vice versa. Uh, so parents have a say, teachers have a big say, the state has the biggest say. Some of the most heated debates that we hear about nowadays when it comes to what gets taught in schools are about social studies. Was there ever a time when everyone, you know, agreed that this is the history we teach? This is the narrative about America that we all share, etc.? Honestly, no, but that's not for want of trying. And to understand that, we've got to start at the very beginning. The 1840s, we see it. The early 1800s, we see it with a new country, this idea that kids have to learn to be whatever American is. They have to learn to be it, and schools could, should do it. Again, this is Adam Latz from Binghamton University. This is where uh, our modern public schools come from, is this sense that the patchwork of schools in the early 1800s in cities was leaving a lot of kids outside of school. And it wasn't just sort of for their good. It was because this idea was... Everybody has to be an American for this to work. And apologies for how offensive this is. A big part of the idea was that certain classes of people would have a hard time being, quote unquote, real Americans. So Catholics were a big target of this kind of uh, education. It was assumed that Catholics were by nature servile and unrepublican. Catholics? Catholics! Your ancestors and mine, McCarthy. They weren't independent. They listened to the Pope. They did whatever the Pope said. They couldn't be American. It was also assumed, and again, apologies for how grossly offensive this all is. Same thing was assumed of um, East Asians, like Chinese, for example, were assumed by elite white policymakers to be maybe incapable, but certainly more difficult of becoming the right kind of American. So there's a lot of targeted education attempts to um, get Catholics uh, African-Americans, uh, East Asians especially, to sort of like fix them. Now, to be clear, in an early generation, they had said these same kinds of things about poor white Protestant kids. You know, it was uh, th the different generations sort of realigned their targets. It, be it went from white Protestant kids to black freed people after the war, after the Civil War, 
Uh, it went to, uh, um, you know, Irish in the 1800s to Italians in the late 1800s and Slavs and, you know, different ethnic groups. So, but the, and, 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 and in the late years of the 1800s, East Asians as well, Japanese, Koreans, Chinese were always accused by white elites of somehow being, you know, racially, uh, incapable or less capable of being the kind of American that a civic life required. You know, like responsible, hardworking, depending on the group. But all these real uh, negative racial accusations were just sort of part of policymaking for for that whole stretch of time. So it sounds like choosing what we taught history-wise has, unsurprisingly, racist, classist, discriminatory foundations. Yeah, from the absolute get-go. And of course, teaching methods were different back then, too. There was a lot more memorization of dates and recitation of famous speeches and stuff like that. And there was no honest exploration or any exploration at all of our flaws. When did that change? The, the biggest and most famous story uh, is from World War II. Uh, at the start of U.S. involvement in World War II, uh, there was this this attempt to redo social studies and civics at um, and it was from uh, uh, famously progressive places like Teachers College, Columbia University. Uh, and it was a very popular idea. And, and it seems kind of familiar, but this is the 1930s. The challenges of the depression, of world war growing, of, of, of authoritarian rule growing. People like Harold Rugg and George Counts, who were scholars at the um, Teachers College, they said, we need all the schools need to get on board. All the U.S. schools need to get on board. And we can't just read a list of heroes with dates to kids. That's not enough. We need to make every kid, it's no surprise, the language comes back, we need to make every American kid an active citizen. And that means teaching kids not just like a list of facts to memorize, it means teaching them to question the power structure in the classroom itself. It means teaching kids that America didn't happen because George Washington magically was was honest and chopped down a cherry tree and then Lincoln was supernaturally honest and saved. Not that. The the rug textbooks were designed to teach American kids that it depended on you and in your community stepping up and challenging um, injustice, which was throughout American society uh, against racial minorities, against lower income people. How did this new idea go over? About as well as you'd expect. So right here where I am in Binghamton, New York, the school board, once this, once these ideas became well known, uh, that these books were teaching a different type of history and civics, school board members, three, uh, proposed a bonfire, you know, literally pulling the books out of schools and burning them. In 1941, when the Nazis, the you know, the Nazis, not like somebody, but the actual real life Nazis are burning books in Germany, the U.S. is also burning books. Do you remember your U.S. history textbook? Sort of. What was it like? I'll tell you, I only studied primary sources in high school, <laughs> which was kind of cool. My history book in eighth grade was pretty thick and kind of all over the place and didn't go too in-depth into any one thing or another. Mm-hmm. It's covered it all. Yeah, mine in high school was massive. It was over a thousand pages. And it came with the study guide, also a thousand pages. And Adam talked with me a lot about textbooks and the textbook industry, which I can't get into here, but it is fascinating. And he said why they're so darn big. I think by and large, it's still the norm to have these monster textbooks. And I bring it up because that's been the story. As every group, as sort of like Irish Catholics went from 
you know, a despised minority to a powerful, large minority, the story of Irish Catholic has been put into the standard U.S. history book. So the history of textbook grows when that happens. But what doesn't get put in there uh, is the idea that America is, is, you know, birthed in turmoil. Instead, the story that gets put in there is heroic Irish Catholics pushed and pushed and pushed against injustice until they were accepted as real Americans. So Adam told me about a recent study done from Stanford University where they asked high school students to name the most famous people in U.S. history who weren't presidents or first ladies. And overwhelmingly, the students identified three people by big majorities. Number one, Dr. King. Number two, Rosa Parks. Number three, Harriet Tubman. Two prominent civil rights leaders from the 20th century, one anti-slavery militant from the 19th century. So this is how history and civics has worked. Yes, Black Americans are able to add in by 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 decades of, of activism. It doesn't just it's not a gift, uh, but they're able to be added into the sort of standard story as long as they don't challenge the standard story, which is that America, when it has a problem, Americans heroically overcome that problem. So Harriet Tubman's invited into the sort of humongous textbook, ever growing textbook, because it allows the history story to be. America, it was terrible. There was slavery. But Americans like Harriet Tubman bravely fought against slavery and o- eventually overcome it. Every group is allowed to add themselves uh, to the story as long as it remains a story of heroic overcoming of injustice. Instead of being a holy cow, America is fundamentally unjust. That's something that literally gets books burned. Proponents of SB 1300 say they're fed up with what they consider to be inappropriate books and other materials being shown to students in public schools. My concern is that some of these materials are not age appropriate and and forcing these conversations with students that are not age appropriate. Other subjects have far more consistent standards, STEM specifically, and part of the reason for that was a massive push after the Soviet Union launched Sputnik in 1957. Right. This is when kids started getting massive amounts of homework. The U.S. was trying to make young scientists and mathematicians to get ahead in the space race. Yeah, but that didn't really extend to things like history and civics. So state requirements for those subjects gradually dwindled. And then the next big national conversation about those topics happened in 1990. So uh, UCLA... Um, uh, Charlotte Crabtree, who was an education scholar, teamed up with Gary Nash, one of the most famous uh, U.S. historians um, at the time and since, you know, still very famous. Uh, And they were commissioned to come up with national history standards exactly for this reason. What does every American kid need to know about U.S. history? And they did. Uh, it, it It was a funded project. They put it together. It was not just a couple of people in a garage. It was, uh, you know, a well-funded attempt to do exactly this. Let's make it so that American kids are all learning the same history, civic, social studies stuff. The creation of these new history standards was led by one Lynn Cheney. The Lynn Cheney? 
second lady to Dick Cheney during the George W. Bush administration and leader of the crusade against explicit lyrics in songs. The very one, Hannah, though, to be fair, it was a different second lady, Tipper Gore, who got the parental advisory stickers on CDs. But anyways, Lynn Cheney at that time was the chair of the National Endowment for the Humanities. And when these standards were revealed to her, she was aghast. And the, the line from the standards that became so popular was that these new standards were supposed to have more about Bart Simpson than George Washington. You know, the accusation was that if you were white, um, if you were a man, if you were a famous hero, the standards didn't let you in. Rush Limbaugh and other talk radio personalities excoriated these standards, Hannah. Political correctness was the accusation levied against them. Limbaugh himself said famously, history's real simple. You know what history is? It's what happened. And I feel like I can say with confidence that history is not really simple. The quest to learn what happened is unending in the life's work of a good many people. And the other famous accusation, the one that Adam referenced earlier, the direct quote was, What is a more important part of our nation's history for our children to study? George Washington or Bart Simpson? That was said by Senator Slade Gorton from Washington State, and it spread like wildfire. Was it accurate? Were kids learning more about Bart Simpson than George Washington? Oh, absolutely not. And Gary Nash and the authors, Charlotte Crabtree, they said, well, no, what? No. (laughs) They added up, in fact. Um, I, I, I was just doing this in class is why I know these numbers. They added up in their in the defense of the standards, the mentions of people that people like Rush Limbaugh said weren't in them. And uh, the group of sort of founding fathers had 7000 mentions more than all of the other people in the standards combined. You know, so the small group of founding fathers got more attention still in the new standards than all of the other humans (laughs) of of every background, every age, every ethnicity, every whatever. Uh, But the accusation was, and again, it sounds so 2022 or maybe 1619. The accusation was they were trying to make kids hate America by by taking away heroes. So it it fizzled hard. It didn't just fizzle. It it, it exploded. It, It crashed. It burned. How badly did it crash and burn? Pretty darn bad. Uh, The Senate passed a resolution killing it, saying any funding for the development of standards should, quote, have a decent respect for the contributions of Western civilization. Now, I emphasize those words because Western civilization was and is frequently used as a thinly veiled term that means white people. So the resolution to kill the standards passed 99 to 1. And the one vote against it wasn't in support of the standards. It was by a senator from Alabama who thought the resolution should be more critical of the new standards. So this wasn't partisan. It was unanimous. Absolutely unanimous. The senators didn't want any controversy, and these standards had become very controversial. I just want to know what was actually in these standards that made everyone so furious. Yeah, me too. Like, what did they say? So I asked Adam... Have you read them? I have read them. And they certainly um, weren't anything, you know, sort of wildly ideological. To be fair, though, I think to, as it, when I was reading them, I had been a history teacher for many years in high school and I had a PhD in, in, in U.S. history. And I think I was a very unrepresentative sample, um, but none of the ideas were anything but sort of right down the middle, 
uncontroversial things that historians, academic historians, you know, they fight about everything, but not this stuff. You know, these were things that were beyond academic controversy, well-established, non-sort uh, of uh, hot-button issues. However, uh, again, I don't think uh, the problem wasn't history teachers uh, and people with, you know, advanced degrees in history. It was a reputation of what the standards, you know, a false impugning of what the standards included, that they were anti-American, that they were anti-white. And most people, when they decided they didn't like it, uh, they didn't say, well, I'll investigate and I'll go read the standards and I'll make up my own mind. So what's next? Adam mentioned the 1619 Project, a project headed by Nicole Hannah-Jones with The New York Times, that centers on slavery and its relationship to our founding. And then there was the 1776 Commission, established by Donald Trump in direct response to it. So-called divisive concept laws, laws that restrict teachers from teaching topics, have been introduced in almost every state and passed in about half of them. What is going to happen with civics education in the U.S.? This is Danielle Allen again. She's a Harvard professor and the director of the Allen Lab for Democracy Renovation. Well, we are in a challenging moment for sure right now. We perceive ourselves as being super polarized. We perceive ourselves that way partly because there are conflict entrepreneurs out there, people who are literally trying to stir up conflict and division for the sake of profit, in the media context for the sake of personal power in the political context. And against that, we really have to pose an alternative, the alternative of being confident pluralists. Confident pluralists are people who can say, look, the whole point of democracy is that people don't all agree with each other. You, know, you don't need government, you don't need politics if everybody just always agrees all the time. We need democracy because we don't agree. And the whole point of democracy is to have structures that permit us to navigate our disagreements, break through to solutions, solutions ideally that are delivering peace and prosperity for all of us. So the question is, how do you make space for that confident pluralism? To live in disagreement, to be able to do that civilly, to build the relationships that can support that confident engagement with disagreement. Um, that's really the work, I think, of civic education. That's what we're trying to do. And so for the folks who say, it's too hard, it's too polarized, it's too painful, and the answer is, look, the conflict entrepreneurs want you to feel that way. They're making money off that very feeling of discomfort and fear that you have. They are getting personal power off of that. And we need to claim space back for the healthy work of democracy. We need you here. It's a matter of civic responsibility. Well, that is how we choose what we teach and what we taught. Coming up, we're going to talk about what is actually happening in classrooms across the country right now. But before that break, just a reminder from both of us that Civics 101 is a listener-supported show. If you support our mission and civics education, or you're just a fan, consider making a donation in any amount. You can do that at our website, civics101podcast.org. We really, really appreciate it. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.
Hey there, everyone. Hey, folks. The whole Civics 101 team is here in D.C. for a week. That's why you hear cars and stuff whizzing by. Uh, we are in the district to talk to the people that we talk about on a daily basis. And a lot of those people work in the executive branch. That is the largest employer in the world. And a lot of those people work in the civil service, where, after the assassination of James Garfield, it's a long story, they take an exam to make sure that they are the right person for their job. But if you run a business, and you're not the federal government, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all, but to match instead with Indeed. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. 23 hires are made on Indeed every minute, and their matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use it, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash civics. Just go to Indeed.com slash civics right now to support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash civics. Terms and conditions apply. You need to hire. You need Indeed. Anti-racism will not be taught in Virginia schools. The House of Representatives voted 65 to 32 to prohibit teachers from compelling students to learn a list of 11 concepts that deal with race, sex, or religion. On a conservative uproar over critical race theory, which isn't taught in elementary or high school classrooms and still wouldn't. Some of these students actually drove more than four hours from Savannah to speak out against a divisive concepts bill that's moving through the legislature here. Today they're saying they're being silent. You're listening to Civics 101 from New Hampshire Public Radio. I'm Nick Capodice. I'm Hannah McCarthy. And this is part two in our two-part series about civics and social studies education in the U.S. We've talked about the history of teaching history, the attempts and failures to establish a nationwide civics or social studies curriculum, and the reasons why so few dollars go towards civics. Now we are going to look at what's actually happening in classrooms through a teacher who is also a department chair. So she is helping make those curricular decisions. And we're also going to do a deep dive into so-called divisive concepts laws. Well, the current state of civic education is vastly underfunded and underperformed and, more importantly, narrow. This is Louise Dubay. She's the executive director of iCivics. iCivics is the premier nonprofit civic education resource provider in the country. We here at Civics 101 love them. Deeply. Unabashedly. And, and it's really important to us who care about keeping this nation together um, that we talk more and engage more. The devil, uh, if there is one, is uh, division actors, <laughs> shall we call them that, uh, who are using our division to fuel them into a, a situation in which we can't, we don't know what the truth is. We, we can't tell. We believe these things. We have no evidence for them. And yet, and we are being used by these kinds of actors for their own purposes. When Louise says division actors, who is she speaking about specifically? I think it's similar to what Danielle Allen in the last episode referred to, as she put it, conflict entrepreneurs. These are people or organizations that gain power from stoking division. And neither Danielle nor Louise named people or organizations specifically, but I'll name one that I see as such. Uh, Moms for Liberty, which is recently designated as an extremist group by the Southern Poverty Law Center. This is a group that shows up at school board meetings, sometimes alongside hate groups like the Proud Boys, to interrupt, to sow discord. 
One teachers union president in Florida said, quote, I can be sitting in a meeting minding my own business and they turn around and scream at me that I am a commie and teachers want to see all kids fail, end quote. And the reality is, if you were to be able to engage in more conversations at the community level and rebuild, um, you would find a great deal more agreement. And I, I am just, um, but we're going to be fighting this for quite some time. Right? This is not a movement that makes the headlines. It's not one that um, gets the media's interest other than you guys. Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a story that needs to be told because this is not theoretical anymore, right? For us, people are speaking directly about breaking up the country. The country is strong because we're together. Uh, and, and if we let that happen, so engage with people you don't know uh, it, or, or you, don't, you don't agree with. Because frankly, I think you'll be able to get through it. <laughs> and, you know, these may make for very difficult conversation, but, but at the end of it, we'll all be stronger together. So Louise is encouraging civil conversation, encouraging unity versus divisiveness. This might be a good time to talk about those things that are called, quote, divisive concepts laws. I think you're right, Hannah. What are they? So real quick, before we get into them, we got to talk about the name first. These laws bill themselves as divisive concepts laws. And you're going to hear me and our next guest refer to them as such. But again, that is the language used by the people who write these laws. And when we use that language, we reinforce it. We normalize it. The concepts in these laws, which they might consider divisive, are things you and I might not, Hannah. We talk about these things in 90% of our episodes. So, listener, as it is an audio format we are working with here, please imagine I am making air quotes around divisive concepts every time I or my guest say it. Divisive concept laws have been introduced in almost every state. They have been passed in some states. They are a range of laws, so there's not one type. This is Justin Reich. Now, first, full disclosure, absolutely coincidentally, Justin was a friend and fellow pinball obsessive of mine in high school, specifically the game Grand Lizard. But more importantly for today, he is the director of the MIT Teaching Systems Lab, and he's the host of the Teach Lab podcast. It's a show where he talks to teachers about these laws. They're not well-defined. This is a key feature of these laws, um, is that they ban a bunch of thing, uh, teachers from doing things without specifying what those things are. There are different levels of specification. So some laws very specifically say something like, you cannot teach a child that they are responsible for historical events because of their race or that they should feel guilty for uh, events that were perpetrated by their race. The, I think the law is specifically thinking about white children here, although it doesn't specify white children. Now, Justin said these laws have been introduced in almost every state. But how many states exactly have signed them into law? As of this recording, August 2023, 18 states have imposed bans or restrictions. And while a lot of them share language because this is the sort of legislation that gets copied and pasted from other states, you really have to look at it on a state-by-state -state level. Now, I'm going to put a link in the show notes to a website that's got all the laws on one page. Check it out. But one thing I want to make sure to note here. Justin is not opposed to interaction between legislatures and teachers. Teachers are state employees. 
if legislatures get together and tell teachers, here's a specific thing that you cannot tell children, um, they should be able to do that. That's how we regulate teacher speech. Um, uh, the problem, though, is that children, people who study the history of this country, will feel guilty about things that their ancestors did. That is a, that is a normal feeling. That is a feeling that people have. Um, uh, and so where it becomes more complicated is to say, well, it, not only can you not say that specific line, but you cannot teach things that make children feel that way. Well, if you teach things that might make people feel uncomfortable or feel guilt, you are removing a huge swath of what we study in history. Moreover, there are other laws and regulations that require teaching topics that are related to that. One of the biggest problems Justin told me about is contradiction. So every state has requirements about what has to be taught. So what do you do when there's something you have to teach by law and at the same time, by law, it is restricted. So a teacher who's in a state that has a divisive concept law, they might have a divisive concept laws, which says something along the lines of you can't teach things that make children feel guilty because of their race. You are also required to teach the Trail of Tears and the Civil Rights Movement and the Tulsa Race Massacre and these other kinds of events um, where those feelings might emerge. So now teachers are in this position where they are faced with both contradictory guidance and the divisive concept laws are ambiguous. Another thing that shows up in these divisive concept laws is some kind of riff on the what has been colloquially called don't say gay. Um, you know, in Florida, passed the first of these laws, which originally said um, you cannot discuss topics related to sexual orientation and gender in, uh, I think it was kindergarten through fourth grade, and then you can only discuss them in developmentally appropriate ways afterwards. Tonight, Florida's controversial legislation, dubbed by critics as the Don't Say Gay Bill and gaining national attention, has been sent to Governor Ron DeSantis to sign. The governor already signaling... He supports it. You know, lots of ambiguities immediately showed up. There was a uh, state legislator who was quizzing uh, a colleague who was introducing one of these laws and said, well, can we, you know, can you introduce Martha Washington? Um, lady, you mentioned George Washington. Who is Martha Washington? His wife. Under your bill, how could you mention that in a classroom? So to me, that's not sexual orientation. Really? And part of the problem is, is that the actual point of these laws is to prevent people talking about homosexual couples, to talk about uh, gender identities, which are not historically, you know, um, recognized uh, straight male and female identities. But the law doesn't say that specifically. To my understanding, most of these laws have been passed fairly recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, do we know if there have been any repercussions yet, like teachers who faced that contradiction and were punished as a result? Yeah, absolutely. Many. Uh, Justin told me about one in particular, a social studies teacher in Ohio who looks at the Ohio state standards and says, I'm supposed to teach about civil rights, goes to the Ohio model curriculum where it says one of the ways that you can teach about civil rights is about uh, Stonewall and the gay liberation movement. And he goes, that's great. I'm gay. Some of my kids are gay. Like, like 
I'm in. Let's do this. So he he builds this whole unit. He builds it in sort of aligned with the way that he's taught other kind of controversial topics before. Um, and he runs it by his mentor teacher. He runs it by his school principal. He teaches it for three days. It seems to be going really well, really liking it. And then a parent complains. Um, and a cascading series of events gets him. He, he's told to stop teaching the unit. He's administratively separated from the school. Um, and then he's sent to teach in another school. So basically loses a job that he had. It's just a guy who's very carefully designing this unit. Like, like he, can just, he can just talk in such compelling ways about, like, here are all of the guidelines that I followed and all the steps that I took um, to be able to teach this in a way um, that you know, honors my commitment to what Ohio regulations and law has to say about what I'm required to teach and recognizes that there's sort of sensitivities in my community around these kinds of issues. And, that, you know, and wanting to make sure, like, uh, you know, that it's, that, it, that it's teaching hard history, that's not indoctrination, all the kinds of things that good social studies teachers do, but doing it just, like, really kind of to the nth degree. And to be clear here once again, Justin does not think that parents should be excluded from the dialogue about what their kids learn. It's a compromise. That's how we've always done it. And parents, statistically, like what teachers are doing. Justin said about 80% of parents are satisfied with how their kids are being taught, which is a massive majority. It's some of that minority, the 20%, plus outside groups who don't actually have children in the schools and districts and states where they're pushing these bills, who are driving these changes? Every community has people with extreme views. That you know, um, views are very different from their neighbors. We've known that for years. But one of the things public schools have to do is create a curriculum that works for as many students as possible. Um, there's no way to do that. There's always, some of our neighbors are always going to have really strong opinions about things. We call those extreme views. Historically, the way we've dealt with that it was, is we've said, "Okay, parent." If you don't want your student learning about this topic, you can have your student not participate in that learning experience. This happens pretty commonly in things related to health and sex ed. Parents say, I don't like the way that the school, the state has you teaching that topic. As a parent, I have different values. I don't want my kid participating in that. It happens some in English language arts and in social studies. I don't want my student watching this movie. I don't want my student going on this field trip. I don't want my student um, uh, reading that book. I think that's a good, healthy way of negotiating some of these issues. We've got, you know, that student from that family is participating in most of the public school experience. They pick a few things that they're not participating in. They're still, you know, having the, the kind of civic community building experience that public schools offer. What these divisive concepts and other related laws are doing is trying to change that fundamental ground rule and saying that if a parent objects to a piece of content it has to be removed from the school system, that none of the children can have access to that, that that book has to be banned, that they can't go on that field trip, that teachers can't teach about that topic to everyone. We are going to explore how teachers are taking curriculum, laws, students, parents, etc., everything into consideration when they decide what to teach. But first, got to take a quick break. And before that break, if you are the kind of person who wants to compare and contrast the wording in dozens of divisive concepts laws, you will like our free newsletter, Extra Credit. It comes out every two weeks. Nick and I never know what we're going to explore, but never. it is always but it's always fun. And you can sign up at our website, civics101podcast.org. 
Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. You're listening to Civics 101. This is part two of our two-part series exploring civics and social studies education in the United States. So, Nick, we've looked at what gets taught in the classroom from the top-down angle. Uh, state legislatures dictating what should and should not be taught. Now, I want to know how teachers take all of that, walk into a classroom, and say, this is what we are learning today. Yeah, I honestly don't know if I will ever understand how they do it, Hannah. We have met so many teachers in the course of making this show, and I never fail to be amazed by their efforts. But I'm going to give you one example. This is Cheryl Ann Amendola. Hannah, you and I always look our guests up before we interview them. But in this instance, I was surprised she looked me up. I was I was just like reading your bio, just to find a little more about you. And um, you love 1776 as much as I do. The movie is inescapable. If I had a switch, Hannah, that could turn off my love for the musical 1776, I'd flip it. But I don't have that switch, do I? Anyways... Cheryl Ann teaches middle school history and is the middle school history department chair at Montclair Kimberly Academy. She's also the host of her own podcast, Teaching History Her Way. So if Cheryl Ann is the department chair, does that mean that she decides what is being taught? Well, it really depends on the school. So in some schools, you have a curriculum coordinator who will be for social studies and will work with all the schools in the district. So I've seen public schools that work in that way. We have a curriculum coordinator, but then we also have our department chairs at each level. But what's really wonderful about my school, and there are a lot of schools that are like this too, is that as the department chair, I manage things, but I'm working with a team of teachers who puts the curriculum together. So all the curricular decisions that we make are made as a team, which is really wonderful because we're all really different. So we get a lot of different perspectives and we wrestle with a lot of things. So one of the things that I really wish that people know or knew is that teachers are professionals who work together. We know what we're doing and we pool our knowledge to make it so that the kids in our classrooms have the best experience that they can have based on what we know and what we know about them. Because a lot of times the decisions are made thinking about the population that's in the building. So it's never arbitrary. Let's start there. As we talked about, every state has social studies standards. In Cheryl Ann State, New Jersey, the 9th to 12th grade standards are from 2020. They're 51 pages in total. Uh, interestingly, they use a diagram of a house as a metaphor for how students should learn. Really? Yeah. It's like um, the mission is the foundation. The practices are the roof. Performance expectations are the studs, etc. And Cheryl Ann said, yes. This state has standards. All lesson plans she makes have standards on them. But that is not the most important consideration ever. Number one, first and foremost, we're thinking about our students. So we're not just picking up a random textbook, pointing to a page and saying, we're going to have them read this. A lot that goes into it is who is sitting in my classroom? What is the socioeconomic background of the students sitting in my classroom? What is the racial and ethnic identity of the students that are sitting in my classroom? What are the gender identities of the students that are in my classroom? What are the sexual identities of the students that are in my classroom if they know at the point that we're teaching? What do the families in my classroom look like, sound like, feel like? 
what is the geographic area that we're living in? Because that makes a really big difference. Even in New Jersey, we have rural, suburban, urban. So figuring out what these students need to know, want to know, is it, and their experience in us being able to teach it to them. So the vehicle that we use, it's not even just the material, but then it's also how do we do it depends a lot on those factors because we need the students to understand it. We also want them to buy in. We want them to learn it. We want it to relate to them. So there are so many factors that go into those curricular decisions, but first and foremost, we're thinking about the kids that are in our room. What does Cheryl Ann think the relationship between parents and teachers should look like? Cheryl Ann made it abundantly clear to me she considers herself very fortunate in this regard. She said the parents of her students are enormously supportive of her work. But she said all teachers out there need trust. This is why we go to school. We went to school and we continue to go to professional development and learn all kinds of new things. I mean, believe it or not, history changes. (laughs) But depending on what kinds of new, uh, new documents are found to be analyzed. So, and pedagogy changes. There are different methods that as educational researchers continue to learn about how kids learn. We adapt how we teach. The way I teach now is not the same as the way I taught 17 years ago. So we need to be trusted as professionals to do our job and that we know what your kids need. And it's easy to imagine that a teacher can be told what to say or not to say, but they'll just go and do their job in their classroom and not worry about it. But it doesn't work that way. Consequences can be very real. So I asked her, what is the feeling right now in the U.S. in the teacher community around all this? I think that in some of my colleagues, there's a little bit or a lot of fear, fear for their jobs, fear, um, fear of intimidation. There are very loud constituents at school board meetings who may not necessarily be the largest number, but they're the loudest that make our make make many teachers' decisions more difficult. I have always been screaming from the rooftops that history matters. Everybody's noticing that history matters, which on the one hand is awesome. History and civics do matter. Bring it in, teach it all. But on the other hand, there are huge disagreements about whose history needs to be taught. And really what the answer is, is everybody's. You know that thing that Rush Limbaugh said? Uh, He, of course, is the right-wing radio host who was furious at the proposed National Social Studies Standards in the 1990s. What was that exact line again? History's real simple. You know what history is? It's what happened. Basically, it sounds like people are still having the same argument that Rush Limbaugh was all riled up about in the 1990s. Yeah. I swear I wasn't going to bring it up. You did hear about the Romeo and Juliet thing, right? I... I have a really hard time with this. I can't. It's like really upsetting. Well, it's part of this. It's tangential, but it's part of it. And because it's not civics and we were both in the play, we can have an opinion about this. Uh, Hannah had the better part, by the way. She was Benvolio and I was Abra. Abra is not the worst part. Yeah. Do you buy your thumb in a suit? Anyway, for those who hadn't heard, a school district in Florida is only allowing excerpts of Shakespeare's plays to be studied, not the full text, due to... A lot of innuendo, it is true, and implied sexual content. Thank you for letting me bring this seemingly unrelated thing up, Hannah. But it is an example of what Justin was talking about. 
because eight Shakespeare plays are suggested in the Florida state standards and at the same time censored by this House bill, HB 1069. But away from the Bard and back to civic education, I asked Louise Dubay, the executive director for MyCivics, how do we bridge that gap? So if one person thinks history should be just a recitation of dates and famous people and not a discussion of hard topics like race, gender, inequality, etc., and you got another person who says the opposite, what do we do? How do we come to an agreement? Here's what she said. I would just say, you know, a lot of people have kids, right? Go talk to your kid and, and uh, just ramble off a set of dates. See how it goes. Just try it. And see, you know, are they going to um, uh, remember this tomorrow? Probably not, right? Um, it, if you talk to historians, history is rarely uh, set. And, and we need to uh, come to that more nuanced view of what history is. And when people say, I just want the facts, I say, okay, which facts do you want? The ones from my right pocket or the one from my left pocket? I don't know. There are many, many, many facts. Um, Oftentimes those are told by um, one set of people and the other facts are told by the other set of people. Uh, We need to engage in uh, thinking like a historian and try to uncover uh, documentary evidence, but also uh, multiple perspectives and uh, a a narrative uh, that we need to uncover. That is why we created Educating for American Democracy as a set of questions. Educating for American Democracy is a cross-partisan initiative, and it's headed by Louise and Danielle Allen and 10 others. These are, these are among the top civic education minds in the country. So they have created, with the help of hundreds of scholars and teachers, a framework. It's the EAD Roadmap. And this is not a national standard for civics education. This is something that states, school districts, individual teachers can adopt. And it is about inquiry and discussion. It's not what year was the 12th Amendment ratified. It's centered on driving questions. Those are the only things I remember from my, uh, from my own education, right? When people ask me uh, to take ownership of my own learning, enter into simulation, try it out, work with other colleagues to try to figure out what happened here um, and create something out of this, an art project or something, right? And so that's the... Uh, You try it with your kids. I don't know. Um, (laughs) That's all I have to say. Nick, do you have a, I don't know, a final thought for all of this? I know civic education is underfunded, but if this were a State of the Union address, you're standing up there and you say, my fellow Americans, the state of civics education is blank. Okay. This is just my opinion as a co-host of a civics podcast. So, you know, take it with whatever grains of salt you want. So if you look at the most recent Nations Report Card, that is a study done each year by the National Assessment of Educational Progress, you could say the state of civics education in America is declining. Only 22% of eighth graders tested were considered proficient in civics. This is the first significant decline since they first did this assessment in 1998. And you could blame COVID for this or lack of funding or budgetary woes, but these are eighth graders who are tested. And you might also consider that less than half of American students take any civics classes whatsoever in the K through eighth grade years. 
Now, if you look at the situation that many teachers are in, where curriculum laws tell you you got to teach one thing and divisive concepts laws tell you not to, you could say the state of civics education is dangerous. Or I could, as we often do in the podcast business, uh, do what we call ending the episode on a shrug, and we could just say the state of civics education is complicated. But I think, knowing what Danielle Allen said about federal civics funding increasing tenfold in the last year, and having had teachers come up to our table at social studies conferences and talking about what their successes and challenges are, here is my adjective. The state of civics education is hopeful. More and more states are adding civics requirements. People notice it when these assessments come out, and they care. And ultimately, there is no community in the United States in which I have more faith than teachers. They are the plugged-in, tireless, passionate, caring people keeping education robust no matter what. So yeah, hopeful. And I hope I'm right. is a wrap for this episode but i doubt it is the end of us talking about civics education because you know that's where you that's us we're here i do want to give a massive special thank you to danielle allen and louise dubay and all the folks working at educating for american democracy check them out this episode was made by me nick capodice with you hannah mccarthy thank you always Christina Phillips is our senior producer, and Rebecca Lavoy, our executive producer. Music in this episode by Jules Gaia, Dusty Dex, The Shivers, Stationary Sign, Gustav, Emily Sprague, Lobo Loco, Blue Dot Sessions, Azura, and the incomparable Chris Zabriskie. Civics 101 is a production of NHPR, New Hampshire Public Radio. final thought about all this like a jerry springer final thought sure like that (laughs) you know i played jerry springer in an orientation show for new college students uh there's a funny story about it which i'm going to tell anyone who meets me in person but i'm not going to put it on the show yeah okay life is a highway and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches but there's only one mccrispy so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois.